All right, a couple weeks back, we talked uh, to Brian Burroughs. Actually, we replayed our interview from several years back with Brian Burroughs, the author of Public Enemies, and um, promised you that we would talk about the film with our resident film critic, Matt Perry, who used to teach a class, as you know from listening to the show a few weeks back, on film noir, including gangster films, etc. Am I got this right, Matt? I got promoted. Now I'm your regular film critic. Actually, you're sharing the duty with Gary Gary Chu. I hope you don't mind. Oh, okay. I know Gary, actually. <laughs> Okay, well, we have we have two film critics on Radio Parallax, and, and we're richer for it. So you've had a chance to see the film in the meantime. I did. I promise you that I would see it, and I saw it. And I'm not going to do the armchair quarterback thing, because if, you if you're on a sports station, you know, a lot of what sports broadcasters do is they predict what's going to happen on Sunday. And then come Monday, they don't mention their prediction. <laughs> they don't talk about it. They just sort of cover their butt. Yeah, you know what I'm talking right. about? I do know. So a lot of the things that I talked about that were characteristic of the gangster film were actually in this film. So first of all, the charismatic main character, and that was the biggest problem that I had with this film. We go to see gangster films because these guys are basically, you know, tough guys. And we, we you know, there's a part of us that really want to ally ourselves with them. And that was my biggest problem. I didn't think Johnny Depp was nearly as charismatic as I'm sure Dillinger was and what what you know about Dillinger. Well, we mentioned that last time. I, I You did. I, I didn't think that Depp was up to... The guy he was portraying. No, I and I felt when I was watching, and I said, you know what? If you had flipped these two main characters, if Christian Bale had had played Dillinger and if Johnny Depp had played Melvin Purvis, I think the film would have been twice as good. I think but, you're right. I just think uh, you know he's got that edge of danger and excitement, but Christian Bale does. He's a little bit of a bad boy, and I don't know. Just I didn't buy it from Depp. I just Depp, didn't buy it at know, all. You know, Depp is too like you know 21st century hip cool. And and Dillinger was a charismatic guy, but more like you know of a of a couple generations ago, a more friendlier guy, more like um, like Clark Gable kind of charis charisma. Yeah, I mean he's I can see what you're saying. I mean there was something that Depp was just really missing. In fact, you know the whole man of the people thing. I did not get that at all from the from the film. I I didn't. You're right. He's a little too hip, a little too cool, a little too quiet. I not knowing anything about Dillinger, my guess is Dillinger was probably way more gregarious. And more outgoing, and Depp is Depp is just very internal in this film, and I just, you know, I just didn't think he pulled it off. There, there is a scene in in the film which is based on a famous episode in real life where, when he's captured, the they hold a press conference, and Dillinger basically is leaning on the uh, on the warden, <laughs> putting his almost almost putting his arm around him, and and like the press totally picked up on this that like. What a guy! I mean, here he is in custody, the star prisoner of this of this prison, and he's treating the warden like his old pal. And that was one of the scenes in the movie that I thought worked brilliantly. I just thought that was great. But you know, those scenes where you really felt you connected with this guy one on one, just I think that was one of the very few. In fact, the most charismatic character in the whole film was his defense attorney. I don't remember the actor who played him, but this guy comes on and he's defending Dillinger, and he just he just takes over the screen. Chris, again, Dillinger was a guy who really did, in real life, escape from prison twice, which is like, it doesn't seem possible. It is, it is I, think, I think that really also added to his legend. 
Well, that's I wanted to talk about that opening scene actually, where he's in Michigan City, uh, Indiana, and there's a prison break which he masterminds. Basically, he's, they've caught him, and he's in, they're they're taking him in, and as he's being taken in, he masterminds this escape. He's already got a plan ahead of time, and obviously some things go wrong, but he escapes. And as they're in the escape car, he's holding on to one of his cohorts who's been shot. And so he's, I don't know if you remember this, he's holding on to the guy's hand and the guy's already been shot. He's, he's yeah, dead yeah, yeah. and he's dragging him. He's just, and he's whole, and Johnny Depp, Dillinger characters, holds on to him as long as he can. And then finally he just says, you know, I can't, this, he's dead. But he has held on to him for a good, probably 30 seconds. And to me, that, you know, from the very beginning, I was looking at for these kind of things, this camaraderie, this bond, this brand of brothers, you know, amongst gangsters. And there it was right at the very beginning. You know, the, it's, it's that tight bond that we're looking for. And then he turns right around, and the guy that has screwed up the escape plan by sh- by panicking and shooting one of the guards. He turns around and he 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 just takes he just takes this guy out, shoots him, and uh, kicks him out of the side of the um, the car. So right at the very beginning, the gangster film is set up. There's a charismatic character. He's just being caught and immediately turns right around, escapes from prison. He tries to hold on to a dear friend that is um, that has been by his side the whole time, and the man who has broken the band of brothers is kicked off right away. So you get that whole feeling of the family from the very first scene. Let's pick up where we left off in our last discussion on this. I, I guess if we're going to summarize the current movie that's out there, is you might want to wait till it comes out on DVD. Worth seeing. Worth seeing. Most of the people I've talked to actually liked it, and the reviews all like it. But, but as we've talked about before, the level of film criticism is, you know, if you, <laughs> if you said what you really believed about these films, most films would get panned. But I went with a couple of buddies of mine, and they both liked it. But, you know, my standards are pretty high, I guess. Well, as is often the case, one is generally better off reading the book. And Brian Burroughs' book, Public Enemies, is definitely a worthwhile read. So I give that one an unqualified endorsement. Yeah, and I, I'm sure the book is a lot better than the movie. <laughs> a couple other things that I didn't like about the film were his whole presentation as a populist hero, I just didn't buy. I didn't think that they played that up enough, and I don't think Depp really pulls that off. The worst part of the film, the action scenes. I had no clue what was going on. Yeah. Screen direction was all over the place. There were guys shooting in one direction. You had no idea where anybody was or where they were, but that's typical of action scenes anyway. I mean, it's directed by Michael Mann. Actually, I didn't know that until the very end of the film. I was thinking, who directed this film? Because, you know, I wasn't a big fan of it. And then I saw Michael Mann. I was like, well, there's the pedigree, but it, it I just just didn't go with it. Well, uh, since we spoke last about this and you, you talked about uh, gangster films, you'd mentioned one that I had not seen, which was the original Public Enemy with James Cagney, the William Wellman film from 1931. And so I went out and got a copy and took a look. And it is a fascinating film. And it's pre-code, if people don't know, the the powers that be, or Hollywood decided to police itself to keep out government um, intervention. So they invented this thing was the guess was called the Hayes Code, named after the guy that was heading heading the board. And they really former, start, former postmaster general of the United States. A very wimpy character if you see him on film. And and they really start self censoring. So I was shocked to see how this was definitely pre code. This James Cagney film was definitely showing uh, you know, a pretty rough edge that you could see was making people nervous. Well, I did the same thing. I went and got the original Scarface. Okay. So I saw that and it's very rough. And the gang the shoot 'em up scenes, they are brutal. It's a Howard Haw- Howard Hawks film. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's a really well done film. The talking scenes are very slow, mm-hmm. but Paul Muni, he's not a very bright 
fellow, and he's more like a gorilla. He's not all that charismatic, mm-hmm. but uh, he's a tough guy, and he does not stop. Uh, you know, he's he just bores through any obstacles in the film, takes over his boss's territory. His boss keeps telling him, don't go to the north side, don't go to the north side. <laughs> of course, that's what he does. But the action scenes, the shoot 'em ups they are, they are incredible for 19, 1931 or 1932. You know, we, we said this in the show before. It's worth saying again that, you know, with all of what the crap that's currently out there, you really, people, listeners, ought to go out and get some of these movies, these classics from like the 1930s, and take a look at them. They really do blow you away with how good they are sometimes. I'll, I'll recommend a film that I'll give uh, people a money back offer on their Netflix, <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. <laughs> Incredible Elsa film. Elsa Lanchester playing and the bride. So, and so the, yeah. the funny thing is, is that a lot of these early films are sort of slow. The yeah. editing, uh, especially the dialogue scenes, they go on a bit too long and mm-hmm. there's too many pauses. And But I'm telling you, this thing is so well cut. And I think, you know, if you know filmmaking like I do, you know, sort of, hey, this these are the these are the aspects they they really did well and it's so well cut i mean they don't uh, and some of the action scenes they don't stay on a cut for more than a second or a half a second which at that period in time was unheard of but uh james whale the director extraordinary um and uh bride of frankenstein 1935 don't miss it what do you think the original dracula pretty good wasn't it you know what? You're not going to believe this. I have not seen the original Dracula. Oh, Bella so let's, Lugosi. Let's cut that out. Let's cut that out of the interview. <laughs> okay. Your secret's safe with us. Well, we know what your homework's going to be. We're next, next appearance on the program. Oh, wait a second. You gave me homework the last time. Remember, split infinitives. Oh, well, actually, we had a lot of feedback from our, our listeners, but I welcome, I welcome feedback from you on this as well. You already did it? We talked about it before. It's worth again. It's worth giving an English lesson to our listeners. I Thanks think. Thanks a lot. Well, the most okay. Do you know the most famous split infinitive of all time? To boldly go where no man is gone. Well, so you're way ahead of me. All Amber right. Yen. Well, you did we that last to, our week. Our former public affairs director already 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 informed me of this one. Thanks to Amber Yan and Ed Martin for that one. But uh, you know, in closing, I just want to note um, one funny moment. That I just thought of a moment ago when you were talking about the the Dillinger breakout scene was <laughs> that. He really did, and they show this in the movie, break out a scene with a carved bar of soap, which is kind of legendary, but but I do think that Woody Allen revisited that one in the 60s when he tries to break out with a bar of soap, goes out, it's raining, and next thing you know, the gun in his hand is like foaming. Take the money and run, a classic. <laughs> and he tries to rob the bank with the note, and the teller can't read it. Wait, this says, I have a gub. What does that mean, a gub? No, no, no. No, no, gun. It says gun, gun. Yeah. Can you read this? Does this read classic well matt uh, you're, you're welcome back anytime let's come back and talk about some more movies uh, sometime soon anytime well i hope you come see me in my movie then i know that you will find the see the biggest fool that ever hit the big time and all i gotta do That was our uh, one of our two film reviewers here on Radio Parallax, Matt Perry, who, along with Gary Chu, talks about things in the cinematic world concisely and well. We talked some time back about how we needed to discuss the movie Food, Inc., and today would be that time. And to talk about it as someone who has been a regular, or at least semi-regular, on this program over the past years. So I'd like to welcome back Whitney Lehman, environmental engineer. That's a doctor to you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lehman, good to have you aboard again. Thank you. 
Now, uh, you know, let's just take a moment. I, I didn't realize that, you know, environmental engineering, you can go out and get a master's and a PhD in these things. And you did. I did, yeah. Uh, there are branches of civil engineering and you study movement of chemicals in the environment, transport and fate, and also treatment of environmental chemicals um, and process treatment too, water and wastewater treatment, um, treatment of contaminated airstreams, and examination of uh, chemical movement um, locally and globally. Well, important stuff. We've talked about it in this show before. You, this is about, that was about your fifth or sixth appearance, I think, I think over the so. years. Yeah. And it is important stuff. We want to we want to talk about it, but let's let's focus today on the movie Food Inc., which has just a plethora of issues that we could we could take up. Why don't we start with um, something you talked about in this show uh, some time back, which was how animals are being managed in America's slaughterhouses, and Food Inc. does get into that a little bit. They do. Uh, I think most people in California, although the commercials are very glossy about California cows being happy cows and California cheese is made from happy cows. If you drive down I-5 anywhere towards Kettleman City, you can see the feedlots firsthand where there's, you know, 50 to 100,000 Basically concentration camps for cows. They are. They're concentration camps for cows. Uh, Sanitation is clearly (laughs) a a major issue. They're standing knee deep in their own waste. um, And as uh, Michael Pollan has pointed out, and Possibly from uh, the corn-based diet, certain, and also the continual uh, antibiotics in their feed to kill off some of the flora in their stomachs so that they can get the slaughter weight faster, and partially also to to try to prevent disease spreading in a pretty uh, contaminated environment. Um, You get these both antibiotic-resistant bacteria and also maybe not necessarily antibiotic resistant, but deadly bacteria that probably would naturally not have been there if they had been eating grass rather than corn. So you well, have you know, I want to interject. It is my suspicion. I don't know how well this has been charted out. I know there have been documented cases where they've traced back antibiotic resistant organisms to feedlots. And I just think that's the tip of the iceberg. As speaking as a physician, I mean, this is becoming a major epidemic in America methicillin-resistant staph, other resistant organisms, and I'm sure some of this goes back to the feedlots. I think a lot of it does. Um, Union, I think it's Union of Concerned Scientists wrote a paper on um, antibiotic resistance, and uh, my understanding is that quite a lot of it is is a result of factory farming, not necessarily overprescription of antibiotics, which was more common in the 80s. But I, as we have tried to move away from that, uh, factory farming has not moved away from that. And as it's as pointed out in the movie Food Inc., uh, I think the biggest consumers of antibiotics are the factory farms, not human the beings. The stat is, as far as I know, 70% of the antibiotics used in this country go right into animal feed. I believe that was the stat quoted in the movie. Right, which is insane. Yes, it's pretty insane. And so that that serves two purposes. There's a subtherapeutic dose to kill off bacterial you know, flora in the gut of the animals so they get to slaughter weight faster and then preventing the spread of diseases. And then, of course, having to rotate, once the the antibiotics are no longer useful on the factory farms, they, my understanding is they have to rotate them very frequently and, uh, you know, resistance is developed pretty quickly to a number of types of antibiotics. Well, they showed a woman who was a, a chicken farmer, which we'll talk about in a minute, but she said, and this is plausible, she said that because of the constant exposure to antibiotics in the feed, she'd actually develop allergies to many of them. 
That's true. I've also read cases of people who've had allergic reactions to milk, um, although they're supposed to stop giving uh, dairy cattle antibiotics, I think several days before they milk them. I don't think that's always the case. And there have been cases where antibiotic concentrations have probably become kind of high in milk and dairy products and people have had allergic reactions. Well, something you talked about on the show many years ago was illustrated shockingly. I, I, there, there were several things in the movie that actually just had my jaw dropping. And the one that really hit me, I think maybe the hardest, was they showed a chicken farm. And the chicken farmers, for the most part, wouldn't let the cameras in because they were told not to by the powers that be. One woman said, to hell with it. Come on in and take a look. And they brought the cameras in and they showed these chickens, which have been bred because we all like, you know, white meat to have these huge misshapen, there's these like basically mutant chickens with these huge breasts. So you get more of the, the breast meat, but the animal is misshapen and not like your normal chicken running around the farm. The chicken can literally only take a few steps forward before it has to plop down on the ground again. I think the same is true of cattle. Um, it's a combination of uh, breeding practices to breed them for you know, larger breasts, or in the case of cattle, certain cuts of you know large, more muscle mass, and then the second problem is trying to get them to slaughter weight quickly, um, and their skeletal structure can't support the very quick bulking that occurs, and so I think you have that same problem with cattle, and then you have the downer problem where they can't stand um, on their own two legs; they've gotten too heavy too quickly, uh, they fall over, and. There have is I that think, actually a major factor in the downer downer downer? I believe so. I, I thought that. the skeletal system was unable wow. to support such intense, quick bulking. Um, also, cattle have uh, hormones too, uh, steroid hormones. Yeah, that, let's talk about to, that. That comes in the movie too. Uh, and and I was one of what I guess fair enough does seem like a good moment in the film is that Walmart, not a company we've been too kind to, because for I think for good reason on this program did respond to requests from consumers to stop putting the, the bovine somatotropic hormone-induced milk on their shelves. They pulled that, which, meant, which means that you know, the market for that has gone down, which has got to be a good sign. I think so. Uh, for a while, I think it was Ben and Jerry's who tried to sue the FDA over saying that their milk and ice cream was uh, bovine growth hormone free. And of course, that caused uh, a lot of controversy because the people making the bovine growth hormone who were selling well, it. Yeah. I don't think it should be controversial <laughs> unless, unless you make it. You want to just say, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. So we're right. going to stop you from even saying that. Yeah, exactly. And, and they weren't saying that there was anything wrong with it. They were just saying that theirs was free of that. Right. A hormone, and of course, I believe it was Monsanto who uh, tried to sue them over it, and and said, if you were, are going to put that label on your product, you have to say that there's no difference has been found between cows treated with right. bovine growth hormone versus right. those not treated. But I do think there is one major difference, and that is antibiotic use again, because as far as I am aware, uh, the growth hormone is injected directly into the udders, and that does cause infection, and it does cause more use of antibiotics. So and I, the thing is, we're living in a country that has to stockpile the huge oh, the huge surplus we have of cheese because there's so much milk being produced. Someone invents a hormone that makes cows produce even more milk, which, which does seem a little counterintuitive. It does. Dairy products don't have a long shelf life, as you know. So uh, unless you're freezing cheese and shipping it around the world, it... It seems wasteful uh, and unnecessary. Well, I think you'd agree with me, Whitney, that uh, we probably should be drinking uh, milk that doesn't have recombinant hormone in it. There's just no reason to do so. I agree. I don't see the benefit personally. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I, I, as a consumer, I would prefer to have the milk that does that. I'm not going to buy it at Walmart, I don't think, but, but I'm glad that it's going to be more mainstreamed. I am myself as well. And I know that you, we've discussed this before, you are a vegetarian, and, and I'm not quite ready to go there. But <laughs> in the meantime, I think all of us should probably be not eating corn-fed beef. I agree. I mean, there there are many issues besides the humane treatment of the factory farm animals, which is you know one of the principal reasons I'm a vegetarian. But philosophical issues aside, the carbon and ecological footprint. I think if you just took a look at that and you factored all uh, the externalities into the cost of the product, if you examined the product from cradle to grave, um, the pesticides and the water needed to grow the corn to feed the cattle to the hormone buttons. Uh, to the waste problem, everything that you could possibly quantify in the life cycle of beef or ground beef or chicken, uh, I don't think it would cost a, a dollar or a couple dollars a pound. I think it would be more on the order of $25, $30 a pound or more. And it would be treated as a, people would think of it as a treat like they do in other countries. Or because a it condiment, would, something it, you add. Right? It would be priced accordingly um, if we weren't all picking up the tab kind of through the back door, which is what's going on now. Um, but I do think if the costs were internalized into the product, um, people would certainly eat less of it. And they, if you let capitalism take over, you know, and continue on the way it has, people would make the choice of eating less meat because they wouldn't be able to afford it. Well, I'm doing what I can to switch over to a grass-fed beef. And I know that, unfortunately, you have to leave us. But, but why don't you come back next week's show? Let's talk about Joe Salatin, what he's doing, and what Monsanto is doing in the seed department, because that's worthy of 10 minutes uh, at least. Yes, I'd love to. That'd be great. All right. Dr. Whitney Lehman, environmental engineer. And we'll be back uh, next week to continue this talk about Food, Inc., a movie, which I... Two thumbs up, wouldn't we agree? Oh, I would. Two hoofs up. All right. Well, let's, if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to think about going out and doing that. So Whitney will take this up again next week. Mm-hmm.